0: Okay, so uh, how many of people here know the name D.L. Moody? Raise your hand if you know who D.L. Moody was. Okay, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. If you're an American, you should. You should know D.L. Moody's name. Towering figure of the 19th century. And he was somebody who shaped the spiritual landscape of this country. His effects are are felt and experienced even today. So it's somebody you should know. But at the height of his success, D.L. Moody's success, his son, Will, enrolled in Yale University. And we went to uh, Yale and promptly, like so many at Yale, uh, lost his faith. He, de- he decided to reject Christ, society. he was not a Christian anymore. And of course, this, uh, this was gr- of great distress to D.L. Moody, who, you know, he was very successful at the time. You know, Abraham Lincoln had to go to Chicago, had to go to Chicago just to see what was going on there under the ministry of this man. So very successful. And at the height of his success, he felt like like a failure. And he wrote to his son at Yale, Will, and he said, my greatest shame, my greatest shame is that I am preaching a gospel that my son does not believe in greatest shame i can give you a contemporary example there was a well-known preacher and one after one service where he, where he preached at his church uh, the people coming out of the church were greeted by when they came out of the church the son of this minister standing on top of a car cursing at the top of his lungs <laughs> so the people were coming out of church and they got and they and all of a sudden this guy's son is cursing And uh, I I remember this uh, particular preacher saying at one point later, he said, you know, how could it be that a man who has, you know, a reasonably successful career because of what's going on with his children can feel like such an utter failure, such an utter failure. And when he said, by the way, reasonably successful, he wasn't kidding. Uh, I'm not using the name because if I use the name, you would know who he is. What these men were expressing is something that is just inviolable, and that is the connection between our hearts and what's going on with our children, right? You might think, you might say, oh, it doesn't really matter that much, or or try to deny it's there, but you cannot deny it's there. What is going on with our children, it just is like a sword in our hearts, right, We're tied to them. Our our children are bonded to them. We're going to read a sad story today. We're going to read a story of another story of a parent and a child, of a father and a son, and uh, things have not gone well. As we are rejoining our story in the life of David with his sons in this this establishment of this covenant of dynasty, of righteous succession through all generations, We find uh, this relationship in in shambles. And it's where we're joining the story. It's come to a contest between David and his son, Absalom. And uh, where we're coming in, David has fled from Jerusalem. Absalom has come and taken up Jerusalem. Absalom has an army. So David must have an army. David is raising an army. And they have to come together. It's come to the point... There has to be a battle. You can feel the pain uh, in the passage as David prepares and Absalom prepares. And what's going to happen is terrible. It's going it's to be of great damage to Israel. There's going to be many who died. It's going to be much bloodshed, if we are translating it correctly, in the thousands. And uh, this young man, Absalom, is going to... To uh, meet his death a uh, very uh, very ignoble death, he ends up as, as we 're about to read, caught in a tree he 's actually hung on a tree, and kind of displaying the curse of deuteronomy twenty one is anyone who hangs on a tree and there 's Absalom hanging on the tree and it 's a very uh, painful death because Joab, the chief general of David, is very shrewd, and he is not going to be the one who deals the death blow very shrewdly. So this expert killer with his you know translated dart there is probably a stick, leaves him in great pain, doesn't kill him. So it's a very painful death, it's a very ignoble burial. He's thrown in a pit with stones over it in the woods. Very shameful way uh, to be buried there. But the worst thing about this, the worst thing about this is that when this man dies, this young man Absalom, it it, it it seems like the the covenant is is in shambles. It's here he is dying without any offspring. He's dying without any children. And that's the greatest. Problem. And it goes by kind of quickly in the passage. I just want to, want, to, want to point it out to you before we read it, where it says Absalom earlier in his life, he sets up a pillar. He sets up a monument to himself because just to be remembered because he, he has no living, surviving offspring. And it comes to be called Absalom's pillar. And the author makes a big deal about it. Like it's here to this day. Well, this is interesting because if you go to Jerusalem and uh, if we could bring a slide up here, you can um, see this structure across across the Kidron Valley. You can't see it unless you are standing on the top of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And if you see it, only if you're stopping, you can't see it from anywhere else, but if you're standing at the top of the Temple Mount, you can look across Kidron Valley, and you can see on the Mount of Olives this big, tall structure here at the bottom. And you're like, wow, what is that? Well, that's called Amnon's pillar, and uh, it's a quite imposing structure. If you get up close to it, we could see, this, see it up close here. That's, uh, that's a little person standing in front of this. It's a very imposing structure. It's not really Absalom's pillar. They call it Absalom's pillar. It's actually from a much later period, like I think the first century, but they call it that because of the import of Absalom's pillar, because the memory of how serious it was that this man died without children, was kept alive, and was applied to this structure because people remembered how bad this was. This was the day when it seemed like the covenant of dynasty died, as Absalom died with no offspring. just seems like it's not going to happen. So let's read this sad story. Please stand with me as you're able, and uh, Veronica, if you'll read to us selections from 2nd Samuel 18 and 19
1: The scripture reading for for today comes from 2nd Samuel chapter 18 verses 1 through 18 verses 24 31 through 33 and chapter 19 verse 1 through 8 Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent forth the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zerui, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you, but... The men said, you shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate, while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai Deal gently for my sake with the young man, Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the slaughter there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the, than the sword. And Absalom chanced to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding upon his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was left hanging between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, what, you saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you 10 pieces of silver and a girdle. But the man said to Joab, even if I felt in my hand the weight of a 1,000 pieces of silver, I would not put forth my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you, and Abishai, and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man, Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three darts in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And then 10 young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom, struck him, and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab had restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, every one to his own home. Now Absalom, in his lifetime, had taken and set up for himself the pillar which is in the king's valley, for he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called forth the pill, called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's Monument to this day. Verse 24. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went out to the roof of the gate by the wall. And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. Verses 31 through 33. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good tidings for my lord, the king, for the lord has delivered you this day from the power of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man, Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord, the king, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Chapter 19, verses 1 through 8. It was told, Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that, that day was turned into mourning for all the people, for the people heard that day. The king is grieving for his son, and the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, O my son Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I perceive that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore, arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night, and this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate, and the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate, and all the people came before the king. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. Thank you. Please be seated. So a very sad story, uh, and we see David here between the inner and the outer gates of Mah- Mahanaim waiting for news, and he loses his son. And of course, you would expect he would uh, grieve, and he's grieving here. But there's something, there's something more than what you could call normal grief here, isn't there? There's something... That is debilitating David. Right? Verse 3 and verse 4, he cannot act for the kingdom. So the people are filled with shame about their victory. You can tell by the way it's written, they can hear, they come coming back from battle, these soldiers, and they can hear the king, excuse me, the king sobbing. And so they're filled with shame. The army's unrewarded, the country. It's leaderless. His people are disintegrating, and the great leader David can't do anything. It seems he's unable to act. What one writer uh, called, he was reduced to a sheer stammer of grief. But this is something beyond grief. You know, there's grief, and then there's debilitating sorrow. There's a there's a place where you you just cannot function. And that's where David is. I mean, why did he get here? That's what I want to ask with you this morning. How is it that David comes to this place where he is damaged beyond repair? Well, you could say, Well, he misses his son. Yeah. Sure he misses his son. But this is again, there's grief and then there's debilitation like this. There's something more than that happening. I think that the author is is putting forth for us here. You say, "Well, it's a close, it's a family member, you know, so it leaves a hole in his heart." And the, those of you who have lost family members, you know, there's a hole there, and it doesn't get filled. But still, there's something more here. You could say, "Well, he's remembering Nathan's prophecy that the sword now will not depart from your house, right?" And so he's feeling that maybe the guilt of this—that he has a hand in this—and you know, there's, I think you're getting closer there. But there's, there's something here that I think the narrative brings out for us. It really could be described in two words. Two words tell us why David is now just unable to function. There are two words that make a man inconsolable at death. Unfinished business. unfinished business. What has been going on in this story is an effort to bring reconciliation between David and Absalom. Joab, his chief general, very prominent figure in this story at this point, has been working for years to try to bring about this reconciliation between Absalom and David, all to no avail. So at this point, you see Joab, he's giving up, and he's, he's seeing the only thing left is to eliminate this, this cauldron of treason. In fact, the, the thing that kind of really brings this out for us, I feel, is this parallel between earlier events in the book, in the story. And if you, if you read what's happening here in chapter 18 and verse 19 and put together what's, what happened in chapters 13 and 14, you see a parallel, the same thing going on. David will not pursue his son, Absalom. Joab has to intervene, and when he intervenes, he's doing it to save the kingdom. So the same thing is going on once again. It's like emphasized here, that David is unable to reconcile with his son. And here, what we see here, is he just lost his last chance to do so. Where did he lose it? In verse 3. You look at verse 3. And there's this decision about whether David should go out with them. And it sounds like he's getting good advice, right? Should David have gone out to battle with them? The answer is, friends, yes. He definitely should have gone out. He definitely should have gone out to confront Absalom himself. It might have gone very differently. It could have gone very differently if David had gone out. But he doesn't go out. And, you know, they say the reason why is because you're worth so much as a king. Um, but look at what he realizes in verse 33. If only, I had, if only I had gone out and died instead of you, Absalom, right? If only I had gone out. He recognizes that. So this, this argument of the advisors that you shouldn't go out, sounds good, doesn't it? It sounds like a good argument, but it's not. You know what's conspicuously, conspicuously absent from this council is Joab's voice. You don't see Joab's voice in this council. And so this counsel that, that he gives stands and David doesn't go. There. David was the king and he needed to act as the king in this situation, especially a king in the covenant of righteous succession, which means you have got to pay, be, be paying attention to the passing of the faith to the next generation. So there would be a dynasty to reconcile with his sons. And so he's, he's brought to this place in verse 24. If you see that in verse 24, he's sitting at the gate of the city, waiting to hear news about his sons in battle. Let me just ask you, does that remind you of anybody else in the book of Samuel? Who can raise their hand and tell me who this might be? Who else was sitting at the gate? Yeah, Lydia. Eli. Eli. Give that girl a prize or something. Well done. Eli, sitting at the gate, right? Waiting for news of the sons. And then the, the tumult comes. In fact, the same word is used here for commotion, the same Hebrew word in verse 29. They both hear about the death. They both fall in grief. So you see where the author is showing us is David has become Eli, So that's our lesson for today. The lesson is there is unfinished business and you never know when your last chance is going to be. David didn't know when his last chance was going to be. What is the unfinished business that you may have with your children? Do we have unfinished business in our lives? You know, a a little while ago, um, I had a group that I was doing. We were, uh, it was a discipleship group I was leading, and it was a group of men who were all older men. They all had adult children. And so we were, you know, um, going along, uh, trying to walk with the Lord, I really respect, admire these guys. They each had children, though, in a situation uh, of difficulty. There was each, uh, they adult children, there were challenges involved. And so we ended up getting into that and exploring that in the group And uh, realizing that it was very difficult for these men of adult children to be engaging and confronting their children where they needed to. And they were realizing they needed to engage with their children, but they were having a hard time doing it. And we were exploring, well, why is that? Why is it so difficult? What are the obstacles uh, to doing that, To, to being able to express your concern appropriately to your children? What is it that was keeping them from that? And so we went through it. First reason was, well, we wanted to, you know, they wanted to wait for the perfect timing. They wanted to wait for the perfect moment. And, you know, there's some wisdom in that, you know, with, uh, with our adult children. We don't want to just kind of blurt things out. We want, to, we want to have a sense of timing about things. That's right. That's good. But that could also become an error where people are always waiting for the right moment. and it's, it's, never, it's never the perfect moment, actually, to engage sometimes in the way we, we need to engage. It's never the perfect moment for that, right? So then there's, uh, the, the, we realize they, they, were, they were afraid that they wouldn't do it right, that you know, they would be meddling in their children's affairs. They don't want to do that. And again, you know, there's some wisdom in that. You don't want to go and interject yourself in your child's career decisions, right? And you don't want to tell them how to run their kitchen. You don't want to tell them what to name their kids. But what we were talking about, realizing, is this, these are matters of spiritual import. They did need to engage, you know, and they, they were finding that they weren't able to do that. You know, there are always good reasons, actually, not to engage as a parent not to finish the business of the Lord, right? These advisors are just, they sound so good in verses 2 through 4, right? Telling him not to go. They have good reasons. Sounds good. I wonder if these were the same advisors that were telling David to stay back in, in 2 Samuel 11. When he stayed back from war and committed adultery with Bathsheba. I wonder if they were the same advisors saying, no, I don't go out to war. Or You know, for us, there are always different reasons that, that are good to not engage. Awkwardness or inconvenience or impracticality. But uh, when we really got into it in this group, the Holy Spirit, I think, really helped us because eventually we got to the deepest reason why it was so difficult to engage, why, why maybe and... and you know, it was suggested to us what was going on with David. Why couldn't he engage with Absalom? And he had all of these opportunities. Why couldn't he do that? When it came down to it with these guys, you know what it was? It was the fear of the pain of what they would hear if they actually talked to their children. So think about that. The fear of what they would encounter if they really had a heart-to-heart with them because they would have to come to admit and come face-to-face with where their child is spiritually. And maybe, maybe that their child would, would be rejecting the thing that they held most dear in their hearts, which was Christ. And that was the obstacle, that pain of what they would fear. The L. Moody's greatest shame. So David's reticence starts to make more sense, doesn't it? In this light, David could not face what was going on. You know, this brings us to a real surprise about parenting, the big surprise about parenting. I, you know, I know I keep saying that. I keep saying in this parenting series, I keep saying, ah, oh, the parents, the big surprise of parenting, is this. the big surprise of parenting is that. You want to know what the biggest surprise of parenting is? Here it is, okay? This is the biggest surprise of parenting. There's always a surprise. <laughs> There's always a next phase. There's always a surprise in parenting. You always feel like you got it down and then... All of a sudden, you don't got it down anymore. You know, I was talking with uh, some folks about parenting, and someone said, you know, parenting is like, it's like uh, facing a hurricane, you know? It's like you know a storm is coming, and you get used to it, because you get to know the drill, right? You have to put wood across the windows. You have to fill the bathtub. Like, you have to get the water right. If you're facing a hurricane, you know the drill, and eventually you get the drill down. And I said, yeah, you know, I see that, but actually, I would say that it, parenting is like that, except you don't know what the storm is that's coming. It's, it's, it might be a hurricane now, but all of a sudden, it's not a hurricane. It's a flood. It's some other, you know, great crisis. And you, you, you weren't expecting that, you know? You thought you had it down, and you don't. And the big surprise, the biggest surprise of parenting, is that we need to change as parents. We think, oh, no, 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 we're raising our kids. You know, they're growing. But we don't realize that our, our children's growth necessitates our growth. We have to change as parents because of this big surprise. And what we find as we come into, you know, if you're not there yet, I'll tell you, stage of adult parenting is that our kids don't really get it, you know? You think when they get to be adults, now they get it. But they don't always get it, you know, because they can't yet. Because some things only come with age, right? It helps if, if they have children, you know? That, <laughs> that tends to add some perspective uh, to a person's life, You have having kids, you know? But even when they have kids, they still don't, may not get it, and that's tough, right? I remember as an adult, you know, I had become an adult, you know, and I had made a decision about my life. I wrote this big, long letter to my, to my mom about it. And I said, Mom, I made this decision. I've thought it through. I've gone through all this. and I've decided I'm going to be celibate in my life. I'm not going to get married, and I'm going to be celibate in my life. You know what my mother did? She got this letter. You know what her reaction was? She just threw it out was like, he doesn't know what he's talking about. She said to me, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, no, mom, I've made this big decision. I figured it out, you know, and I found this heartfelt letter. She just threw it out. Because, you know, she was looking over my head at my future. It was like, he doesn't know. He doesn't. She knew me better than I knew myself. But I was an adult. <laughs> but she still did. Now, she wasn't right about everything, but yeah, she was right about this. I didn't get it yet, you know? You wanna see righteous, you know, I'm sorry we have to go through these sad stories, talk about parenting. You wanna see righteous parenting? You wanna see a great example of righteous parenting in the Bible? Job one. First few verses of the book of Job. I often take parents there and say, if you wanna see a good example of righteous parenting, Job chapter one, because you have Job with adult children, and what is he doing? He makes sacrifice for them from afar. You have this man. He's actually he actually prays for his children while they're going to parties. <laughs> That's righteous parenting. He's praying for children while his children while they're going to parties, for their spiritual condition, from afar. Really good parenting. So here's a biblical model. Here's a biblical motto. Okay, you want a, you want a, you want a good motto for what the Bible teaches about parenting. Here it is. Whatever the stage need to engage, how's that, right? Whatever the stage, need to engage, okay? You heard it here first, okay, so that's what you yeah. All right, so that's what we gotta do as parents. Now, while I, while I have your ear, you, you adult children who have older parents, okay? Why, because I know a lot of you in this situation, you are also have older parents, okay? While I have your ear, you young people, let me, let me tell you what your job is. You know what your job is? If you're an adult with older parents, here's your job. Listen, just listen, listen to them. You are no longer in the realm of obeying, but you need to listen, that's all. And you know, you may need to train your older parents to speak what they see to you and then leave the decision to you. You may need to train them in that way. You know, they may not have realized that. It's your life and you're making the decisions. It's you. It's for you to make the decisions. And so they may need some time to get there. Some of us older parents, you know, take longer to get there than others to recognize that our child is living our child's life not our lives we need to respect that it's their life but it's hard you know it's hard for your your parents you know because you came from them that you proceeded from them you came out of them you know so it's hard they have to come to recognize that the holy spirit is equally divine with the other members of the Trinity, even though he proceeded from the two of them together. The Holy Spirit is fully God, fully equal in his divinity, proceeded in his personhood, but not his divinity. Fully God, fully eternal, all the attributes of God. Realize that. That is why our children are, are equal adults. We need to learn that. But for you, as adult children, we would do well to listen, because there are some things that we just do not have perspective on yet. So keep honoring. Honor, honor, honor. That never stops. Okay, let me bring this even broader. Because maybe you aren't in uh, either of those situations. Maybe you don't have a difficulty with your adult children. Maybe you're not having any kind of struggle with your older parents. But what is it that might be unfinished business? in the close relationships of your life, the familial relationships of your life, what might, who might the Holy Spirit be bringing up even now where there's unfinished business in the family? Finish the business of the Lord because you don't know when your last shot is going to be. David didn't know. He should have known. You know, he should have known that these uh, uh, sons of Janiah, they are not, they think with their swords. They would not spare Absalom when he sent them. And, you know, there's this power thing going on between Joab and David throughout the book. Joab's going to, you know, Joab is a legend at this time in his own right. He's loyal to David, but he's going to do what Joab thinks he wants to do. You know? But, you never know when your time is gonna come. David didn't know here. And so what you wanna do is ask yourself the question, do I need to finish the business of the Lord in my family before it's too late? Let me tell you, I made a decision back in 2016 to go and, and visit my dad. And he was in decline at, a t- at the time he was in a, a retirement community. And I made a decision that we were regularly going to go visit him. It was inconvenient, it was awkward, it didn't work. Thankfully, I had uh, my wife's support in this, but we were gonna do this, take a, a lot of resources and time to go and regularly visit him. Even though I knew that five minutes after I left, each time he would probably forget that I was there. But he was gonna hear the gospel. And it was painful. You know, it was painful because I knew every time I had to reface the, the dread that he would reject the thing that I hold most dear in life, and that's Christ. He thought he was going to live forever, didn't think he was going to die. But I said, this is something we need to know because it's unfinished business. And, you know, I don't know. It's up to the Lord how it's going to turn out. But that facing that dread, that's what I think helped me to understand what I think David was facing here. I began to understand what David felt, this hopelessness for change. And if you're feeling like that in some situation with your family, look, I know it is so hard with family members. It is so hard with family members. It's like swimming through quicksand, right? It's a reason why sometimes after a visit, your spouse turns to you and says, why are you like that with them, right? It's like you're a different person with them. How many of you have ever heard that? It's like you're a different person with them. And you're like, "Ah, I don't know. It's because you are. It's because of these layers of years and years, some for good, some for bad. But if you have difficulty here, and you, and you may, just ask yourself, what would you want David to have done with Absalom before this last chance? Right? Just ask yourself that. What would you want David to have done with Absalom? And that may help you to say, okay, maybe there's something I can do here in this situation because you don't know when your last shot's going to be Let's, let's return once more to verse 33, where I read this so well, when David gives this word, would I had died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, Absalom, would that I had died instead of you? I think that is meant to ring in our ears, Because the soldier kind of repeats this, right? Doesn't he? In chapter 18 there, verse 12, the soldier kind of repeats, for my sake, says David. The soldier says, for my sake, spare Absalom. See, David wanted to cover Absalom, but Absalom, David needed to be covered himself. Once again, a son of David dies instead of David. David knows his own guilt. He knows that he deserved to die, but he didn't die. A son of David died instead and received the curse of Deuteronomy 21. The glory of Absalom became his trap, and so he was cursed. And the death of that son of God in this story brought peace to the kingdom. Actually, Absalom fulfills his name, a father of peace. It's a very sad story, right? Because David deserved to die, and Absalom deserved to die too. They both did. To really save the dynasty, there needed another son of David to come who did not deserve to die and yet die. And another son of David did come, and he did exactly that. Just like Absalom, he was hung on a tree. But unlike Absalom, he was the innocent one who did not deserve to die. Do you know how innocent he was? He was, this king, at one point in the same position as David, where there was a battle to go be fought and his chief general says to him, no, not you. You will not go. You will not die. And you know what he said to his chief general? Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You do not know of what kingdom you are because I am the opposite of David. I have to go and die. I will go and die. Not just die, but take the guilt of all of our failures and be reckoned as a sinner. And that death truly brought the peaceful kingdom. That truly brought righteous rule for us through all generations. And so in this story, you see, because the son of David died, David, David was not ruined. He was like Eli, but he didn't end up like Eli. He fell. He falls in grief like Eli, but he does not fall off his chair and break his neck. He's restored to the seat of judgment. In the same way, likewise, Christ is our hope, friends. Even when we miss these chances, even when, like David, we hang back, we don't engage. Christ will help us. He has made the way for us. Because of Christ's work, God can bring change in our families. In those hopeless situations, he can bring change. You know, D.L. Moody's son, Will, after he left Yale, he went back And recovered his faith. He actually ended up becoming the manager of his father's schools. So it is possible to go through Yale and come out (laughs) believing. At least uh, one or two did. That is possible. And I would also say that minister's son on top of the car, I can tell you today, he is a minister himself of this same gospel. Christ can bring change in our families. He can do it. He is our last chance to finish the Lord's business. Let us approach him now at the table. Please stand.